We continue our sermon series, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Read, listen, take to heart. Last week, we had a look at an introduction to the seven letters that Jesus writes to seven congregations in the province of Asia, in a region that we know today as Turkey. Remember that in writing to these churches, Jesus is addressing every church of all time, but most importantly, he is addressing every individual in every church of all time. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Today, we're going to focus in, in a bit more detail, on what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2 and verses 1 to 7. And I've asked Odie Burden if she'll read our passage today. Revelation chapter 2 verse 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. This is God's word. The city of Ephesus was one of the major cities in the province of Asia. It was mighty and majestic and beautiful. It was a centre of tourism and trade. Four major trade routes went through the city, making it quite a cosmopolitan city as well as a very wealthy city. And it was also a very pagan city. It was home to the largest temple in the ancient world, the pagan temple of Artemis. The church at Ephesus was a great church. In Acts chapter 19, we read how the Apostle Paul, on his second missionary journey, visits the city and finds some disciples there. And Paul ends up staying in Ephesus for about two and a half years, so that, as Luke says in Acts 19, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Imagine being a member of the church at Ephesus and sitting under the ministry of the Apostle Paul for two years. After Paul left Ephesus, he sent Timothy to pastor the church, but he still continued to give input into the life of the church. While Paul is in prison in Rome, he writes an important letter to them, what we now know as the book of Ephesians, as well as two personal letters to Pastor Timothy, that we know as the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy. It seems very likely that before his exile to Patmos, John himself was the pastor at the church at Ephesus. 
Uh, tradition has it that he took over from Timothy around the end of the first century. And some people even believe that because Jesus had entrusted his mother into John's keeping, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a member of the congregation in Ephesus. I don't know about you, but this is a church that I would have liked to be a part of. Well, in this letter, the Lord Jesus himself places his stamp of approval on this church. He agrees that this is a good church to belong to because this letter begins with words of commendation. If you're taking notes, this would be the first heading today, commendation. There are three things in particular that Jesus commends this church for. Number one, Jesus commends them for their hard work. In verse two, I know your deeds, that is your hard work. In his commentary on this passage, William Barclay points out that the Greek word that is used here describes labour to the point of sweat, labour to the point of exhaustion, the kind of toil which takes everything of mind and sinew that a man can put into it. So this was a hard-working church. I'm sure that in today's terms, the church would have had several active and thriving life groups. They would have had a visitation program for the sick and the elderly and the lonely. They would have had a thriving Sunday school and youth ministry. They would have had a food program and a literacy program. They would have supported world missions and even had their own outreach team. As one commentator puts it, Every member was doing something for Christ. They were diligent and conscientious. They were hardworking. Number two, Jesus commends the church for their perseverance. Verse two, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. And in verse three, Jesus describes this perseverance in a bit more detail. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. You may remember how during Paul's time at Ephesus, the believers experienced some fierce opposition from their fellow citizens. We read in Acts chapter 19 that Paul's preaching was so effective that it threatened the local silver industry. There's a silversmith called Demetrius who, along with his fellow tradesmen, made silver shrines to the goddess Artemis and sold them for a living. And after Paul had been preaching for two years, Demetrius had to call his fellow tradesmen together and say, listen, if Paul continues in this way, if more and more people believe that gods made by human hands are no gods at all, then we're going to go out of business. And so these men start a riot in the city. They make a citizen's arrest of two of Paul's travelling companions, drag them into the local Roman theatre and come close to lynching them. The opposition was so bad that eventually Paul had to leave the city. Now, those events occurred many years before this letter is written, but it seems that Christians were still unpopular in the city of Ephesus. They experienced hardship it's quite possible that the local tradesmen wouldn't do business with them. 
that may explain something of what we read later on in the book of Revelation. Uh, the beast that ensures that no one can buy or sell without his mark. It's probably a reference to the fact that those who wouldn't participate in emperor worship or the worship of the other Roman gods were boycotted, weren't able to buy or sell. And yet, as Jesus says here, despite hardship, the believers at Ephesus had persevered and not grown weary. And number three, beside their hard work and their perseverance, Jesus commends this church for its orthodoxy. Verse 2, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. And again in verse 6, But you have this in your favour, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now we're going to come back to these false apostles and Nicolaitans and see who they were and what they taught a little later in our series. But just to say that this was not a danger coming from outside the church, but rather from inside the church. In his Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus had warned, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Matthew 7. On his third missionary journey, when Paul was passing near the city of Ephesus, he calls the elders of the church to come and meet him. And in his farewell address to them in Acts chapter 20, Paul says this, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. And here we read in this chapter how the wolves had come. And the Ephesians had done what the New Testament urges us to do in many places, and that is to test all those who claim to be representing God and his word. They had tested them and found them false. Equally, the Ephesian Christians had not embraced the notion of tolerance, that every belief and practice is acceptable, except to be intolerant. They recognised that true love tolerates neither error nor evil. As I said, we'll come back to this again in a later sermon because it's a very important topic. But the main thing to see here is that the church in Ephesus contended for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. The book of Jude, verse 3. And they are commended by Jesus for this. So this was a good church. As Pastor John Stott puts it in his commentary, they were a model church in every way. Its members were busy in their service, patient in their sufferings and orthodox in their belief. What more could be asked of them? Only one thing was lacking and Jesus lays his finger gently on it. In verse 4, the letter moves from commendation to complaint. That's our second heading, complaint. Just one thing was lacking, but it was the most important. I hold this against you, Jesus says. You have forsaken your first love. This is a very fascinating and wonderful picture that the Lord Jesus uses. 
It would have been very familiar to John's readers from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God takes the highest expression of human love that we know, the love between a husband and a wife, and he uses that to describe his relationship with his people. So, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 16, God speaks about forming the nation uh, through Abraham and then later rescuing the nation of Israel from Egypt through Moses. And he does so in this way. He says, I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. You may remember from the book of Ruth that the expression, spread the corner of your garment over me, refers to entering into the covenant of marriage. God describes his relationship with Israel in terms of the relationship between a husband and a wife. But one of the great tragedies of God's relationship with Israel was that Israel as a bride forsook her husband and went after other men, in fact became a prostitute. That is the picture that the Bible uses to describe the nation of Israel rejecting God as her king relying on other nations for help in times of trouble instead of him, and worshipping the gods of the pagan nations instead of him. The prophets in particular use this image again and again of Israel as God's bride engaging in adultery and promiscuity and prostitution. In fact, if you read the rest of Ezekiel chapter 16, you will read in graphic detail exactly what Israel as God's bride got up to. The language is so coarse and vulgar that it comes with an age 2 to 30 age restriction. Uh, the ancient rabbis wouldn't allow any men under the age of 30 to read it, and women weren't allowed to read it at all. I have a feeling that this is one time when you will go and look up the passages I mentioned in this sermon for yourself. Some of you will recall the unfortunate prophet Hosea in the Old Testament, who is told by God to go and marry a prostitute. And so he marries a woman called Goma, and all looks well until Goma goes back to her ways and is unfaithful to Hosea and has children by other men. And Hosea's marital troubles, which are known by and lived out in front of the whole community, become a graphic visual illustration to the nation of what they have done to God. Or to use one final example, God comes to his people and says to them through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 2, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. For Israel, it wasn't simply that over the passing years their love for God had gradually decreased through familiarity and from infatuation to indifference. This was a deliberate and willful turning away from God to other lovers. Some of you may have had a marriage partner who has deserted you and gone off with someone else or who has been unfaithful to you. 
Perhaps you can find some comfort today in knowing that God himself is a deserted spouse. The New Testament also describes the relationship between God and his new people, the church, as being like that of the relationship between husband and wife. Remember that Paul gives instructions to Christian husbands and wives in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 5, and he says to husbands, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Verse 32 of that chapter, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. This, by the way, is why Christian marriages are so important, because when they are lived well, they display a picture of God's love for his church. You'll remember that on a number of occasions when Jesus spoke about his return to take his people to be with him, he used the picture of a bridegroom coming to collect his bride. And this very book of Revelation itself ends with a magnificent picture of God's people as the bride and the Lord Jesus as the bridegroom. Revelation 21, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And chapter 19, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. But again, sometimes the church's love for Christ wanes. Our love for him weakens. And tragically, just as Israel forsook God and went after other gods, so sometimes the church forsakes Christ and goes after other gods, or just a version of Christ that is not, in fact, the true Christ. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. We'll see something more of this in the weeks that lie ahead. And of course, all of this is not just a story about Israel, or a story about the church, or even about a story of the church in Ephesus. This is a story about me, and a story about you. It's well worth our asking today, have I forsaken my first love? Have my decades of being a Christian led to a familiarity that has bred contempt? Or have the gods of this world, money, power, pleasure, enticed my heart to worship them? What do we do if we're suffering from heart drift today? Well, before we look at that, it's important to see that long before we do anything, God does something. 
in the Old Testament, in the book of Hosea, where God is reflecting on the fact that his people have abandoned him and gone after other lovers. He says what he will do. Hosea chapter 2. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will call her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge me. God calls us. He draws us. God woos us. God allures us. He did that for Israel. He does it here for the church in Ephesus. And he does it for me and for you today. Maybe you pushed the play button on the WhatsApp today, thinking that it would just be another interesting sermon on the book of Revelation. And yet today you have heard God's word directed straight to your heart. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. That leads then to our third heading today, which is command. We've looked at Jesus's commendation and complaint. And next, Jesus issues three short commands to the church in Ephesus and also to any individual who finds himself or herself in a state of heart drift. Let's have a look. Firstly, Jesus commands us to remember. Verse 5, remember the height from which you have fallen. God says through Jeremiah that he remembers what our relationship with him once looked like, and now he asks us to remember, to compare what we are with what we were. Remember the time where you first heard of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you invited him to forgive you your sins, and you invited him to come and take control of your life. Remember how you couldn't wait for Sunday to come around so that you could meet with God's people and worship God and soak up the sermon. Remember how you couldn't put the Bible down and how you read great chunks of it at a time. Remember the first time you told someone about your faith and how you stood there with your heart in your mouth, but also with a sense of joy, knowing that God was pleased with you. Remember your baptism and publicly declaring to everyone that you had decided to follow Jesus. And what was it that made us so excited? Surely it was an understanding of who we are and who God is and what he has done for us. First John chapter 4, we love because he first loved us. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Part of remembering is filling our minds with the beauty of Jesus displayed on the cross. Secondly, Jesus commands us to repent. When we hear the word repent, we tend to think of a stern-faced man holding a sign announcing repent, for the end is near. Maybe a picture of a man dressed in sackcloth and ashes on his head. Do hold on to that picture. It'll become useful later on in the book. 
But the word repent in the Bible simply means to turn around. Like when I'm barreling down the end too and suddenly realize I'm going in the wrong direction. What do I do? I look for the nearest exit, one of those with the bridge where I can go off and turn around and go in the opposite direction. It means to turn from our sins and to turn to God. If indeed there are idols and false gods, even false pictures of Christ that we have worshipped, we have to turn from them and say to Jesus, Thou and Thou only, the first in my heart. It's not necessarily an emotional experience, although if it's done properly, repentance will involve emotion. Pastor John Stott writes, Jesus does not urge the Ephesian Christians to feel bad about their sins. It's not what they feel about them which matters so much as what they do about them. They must not wait till they feel sorry. The fact is they have sinned and they must turn from their sin in repentance. So many of us admit our present state, but wait for some emotional upheaval to set us right. We are like children who fall in a puddle and sit in the mud waiting for someone to pick them up. But they should get up at once. And so should we, just as soon as we are conscious of our having fallen. But thirdly, remember, repent and redo. Verse 5 again. Do the things you did at first. What an interesting command. Remember that we've said that the church at Ephesus was a very busy church. They were already doing a whole lot of things. Jesus doesn't send them back to rest, but to work. But it is a work that comes out of a genuine love relationship with him that makes all the difference. You see, hard work without love becomes drudgery. Perseverance without love just means gritting your teeth rather than joyful faith and trust. And hating error and evil is not the same as loving Christ. I've used the illustration many times of a young man, I call him John, who's in high school, hates French, hates, hates French verbs, hates his French teacher, hates his French textbook, and drops French as a subject as quickly as he can, vowing never again to read a single sentence in French. Until five years later, he's in university and meets a stunning exchange student called Antoinette, who is visiting from France and doesn't speak a word of English. That young man goes dashing home to his garage, quickly finds his discarded French textbook and French dictionary and starts conjugating French verbs. It's the same boy. It's the same textbook. It's the same dictionary. It's the same French verbs. But oh, what a difference doing the work out of love rather than obligation. Perhaps there's significance in the fact that Jesus says we are to do the things we did at first. Perhaps in our early years of being a Christian, there was a deep desire and eagerness to spend time in God's word and in prayer and in fellowship with God's people and in sharing the Lord Jesus with others. But after a few years, that has slacked off a bit. We need to go back and do the things we did at first. 
And then notice too that Jesus doesn't suggest that they have to wait until they've fallen in love with him before they do these things. Action is seen to lead to feeling. It is actions that are most important. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said this about loving others. He said, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. And what is true about loving our neighbor is true about loving our husband or wife. There's real value in that marital advice. But it's also true about loving God. God may well give us an emotional experience of his presence. That's a real gift. But don't wait for that. The call here is to action, not emotion. We are called to do what we did at first. When we're meeting the Lord Jesus Christ in the pages of Scripture, when we're pouring out our hearts to him in prayer, when we're sharing him with others as a living reality in our lives, our love for him will deepen. But Jesus doesn't simply issue commands in this letter. He ends the letter with a solemn warning and a gracious promise. So our fourth heading today is warning. Commendation, complaint, command, and now warning. Verse 5. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. This is a very serious warning. Jesus is threatening to remove this church from existence. Isn't this a bit harsh? It only had one thing wrong with it. No, the greatest tragedy would not be the disappearance of a church. The greatest tragedy would be the continuance of a church that is only a caricature of Christianity and does not have a genuine love relationship with Jesus. Pastor John Stott puts it like this in his commentary, The church has no light without love. Only when its love burns can its light shine. Many churches today have ceased truly to exist. Their buildings may remain intact, their ministers minister, and their congregations congregate, but their lampstand has been removed. But Jesus isn't content to end this letter with a warning. Rather, he ends his letter with a gracious promise. And that's our final heading. Commendation, complaint, command, warning, and finally promise. Verse 7. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You may recognize that this promise is a reversal of the curse that we have in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve are banished from the garden and access to the tree of life. It was actually an act of mercy. God didn't want us to exist forever in our sinful state. But the promise at the end of the book of Revelation is that one day this situation will be reversed. We'll get there eventually, I hope. But in the last chapter, chapter 22, in the perfect new world, John sees the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. It flows down the great street of the city. 
On each side of the river stands the tree of life. The tree in the Garden of Eden seems now to be a grove of trees. It bears twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Its leaves are for the healing of the nations, and there will be no more curse. We will have free access to the tree of life, but more than that, we will have free access to God. 1 John 3 verse 2, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That, I believe, is the most important point. Perhaps, like me, you can't imagine the paradise of God, and some of the images and the stories that you've heard in Sunday school and sermons don't make it sound particularly exciting. But, oh, folk, so often we've misplaced the focus. Our focus is not on a place that we are going to, but rather on a person whom we will meet face to face. It's like when me and my children go and visit my parents in Johannesburg. We don't go to visit their house. We don't arrive and pat the walls and admire the clean windows or look at the rose bushes. As wonderful as those are, we go immediately and embrace my parents, their grandparents. In fact, we would speak of it as granddad and grandma's home. The very house is defined by the people who live in it, whom we love. Which brings us all the way back to the main focus of this letter, which is love. For too many people, Christianity has become a way of life rather than a person to be enjoyed, who loves us, whom we can speak with and pour out our hearts to. And so as we close... Let me ask us, how is your heart? Have you perhaps forsaken your first love? Has the fire that once burned brightly within you grown cold and dark? And if so, the Lord Jesus gently calls you to himself even now and says, remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent. And do the things you did at first, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Amen.